welcome to episode 94 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's happening? I think you know what time it is. Well, do we know what time it is? Because it should be question cast time, but it's That's true. actually heresy cast time. <laughs> so we we got so excited about the Meredith Klein Republication question that we completely forgot to do heresy cast last week. That's true. And that wasn't like necessarily us sending a signal. Right. That was just, we totally forgot. Yeah. That wasn't the actual heresy cast. Don't want anybody to be confused. True story. So what we're kind of doing then is we're combining heresy cast and question cast a little bit. We're going to do a full question cast next week, but we've got a, a listener question that's going to tie into our heresy cast this week, and I'm pretty stoked this about is it. just a little preview, a little taste, if you will. It is. We're pretty excited. Consider this your theological amuse-bouche. I don't know what that means, but it sounds pretty <laughs> awesome. I end up watching a fair amount of Food Network TV because of my wife. So I know you do. Apparently, that's a fancy French word for a piece of food that's an appetizer that is small enough to be eaten in one bite. Huh. I, I don't think that this is that. It's going to no, be like not, an hour but... and 20 minutes long. <laughs> it's definitely not, but that's the only thing that came into my mind. Yeah. So we are talking about everybody's favorite second century heresy called Montanism. Is this everybody's favorite? Actually, I think Marcionism is, but we already did that. Yeah, this so, is a close second. It is. So not to be confused with ultramontanism, which isn't just an intensive form of Montanism. Uh, ultramontanism is like a pre-Reformation thing where it was the, I think it was the French wanted to be ruled by the papacy across the mountain. So it was ultramontanism, like across the mountain. This is Mon- Montanism, which has nothing to do with Montana, but has everything to do <laughs> with a second century crazy guy named Montanus. Best opening ever yes. for this topic. Yeah. So more or less, what we're talking about with Montanus is a guy, and he had these two prophetesses, I say that in air quotations, who they founded essentially an offshoot of Orthodox Christianity that was more or less kind of a doomsday cult. They didn't do anything right. crazy like like kill themselves or like they didn't have like massive stocks of food. They, they didn't do anything super crazy, but it was essentially a doomsday cult in that they believed that the end was imminent and not just like imminent, like could happen at any moment, but like imminent, like is probably going to happen in the next like five or 10 years. So we're, we're talking about a kind of doomsday cult that then got wrapped up in some sort of strange practices uh, involving, you know, kind of ultra charismatic stuff. So we're going to go through some of the basics. Um, I've got a couple of quotes to read, and we're just going to talk a little bit about Montanism and what the errors were. So even though you're the one that has the degree in this, can I give a shot at describing to you how I understand kind of the context of which this came out of? Let's do it. And then you can tell me where I'm wrong. How's that? Sounds good. I love telling people where they're wrong. I was going to say, you agreed to that way too easily. <laughs> I very rarely get to tell you you're wrong. We're like on the same page for almost everything. So so my understanding is, if we kind of look back historically, basically like the post-apostolic fathers, they, there wasn't really like a fully orbed doctrine of the spirit. I mean, their references to the spirit were primarily personal or catechetical or experiential. And there seemed to be like a lot of focus on the work of the Holy Spirit, but not necessarily his nature relationship to the Father and the Son. So even like among like the early apologists, if you can call them that, like Justin Martyr, there's reference to like the three persons, but that's usually when they're citing the baptismal formula or talking about the Eucharist. Right. And again, the emphasis is primarily on like the activity, what the Spirit is doing, as opposed to his relationship with the Trinity. Right. So then you have all these kind of early forms of processing what that relationship is like with like all the pneumatological heresies we've spoken about, like the dynamic Marcionism and modalistic Monarchianism, which we covered in, did we already do those on the heresy cast? We did. Yeah. That was the first heresy cast. Okay. So go back and listen to those. So you've got those coming out and then not until you get to like, I would say like Athanasius and Augustine, where you get the beginnings of what we'd consider like pneumatological orthodoxy. But as everybody's processing this stuff, here comes Montanus, basically about AD 170 or so, right? Yeah, r- roughly in there. 
around the same time as Tertullian. Yes, exactly. Who was kind of caught up in this to some extent, right? He was. We'll talk about that in a little while. Yeah, famous. So there's a lot to be said here about, I think, the context of this. And it's interesting just from my perspective to be thinking, here, here's a time where really the young church is processing. Is it a critical point in time where they're trying to identify the role of the Holy Spirit, not just his work, but his relationship in the Trinity? And so that's partly where this, where he kind of falls into trouble. And he's not, just like all heresies, he wasn't the only one espousing this view, but for whatever reason, probably because he was pretty extreme, his name got associated with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a fair summary. And it's not as though it was like a first, you know, the, the end of the first century, beginning of the second century is a complete free for all, but particularly with the Holy Spirit, there was, um, I don't want to say a lack of clarity, but there was just kind of a lack of everything. Um, there was right. people were talking about the Holy Spirit. They recognized that the Holy Spirit was active in the church um, and in, in um, you know, in the scriptures was revealed as a person. But they weren't quite sure exactly what the uh, relationship was, as you said, between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Um, and they were kind of working those things out. So Montanus kind of comes on the scene and he um he takes this sort of ultra spiritual hyper spiritual um spirit spiritual capital s spiritual perspective where he really wants to focus on the holy spirit which in and of itself is not a bad thing so he has these two uh women named priscilla and maximilla maximilla i've got a book next to me which is why you can't hear me on the microphone all of a sudden priscilla and maximilla and these two sort these three sort of served as mouthpieces for the movement. So they set up camp in a region called Phrygia, which almost everything in uh, the early church happens in Asia Minor. So it's in Asia Minor. Um, And they set up camp and sort of started to prophesy that not only was um, the coming of the Lord imminent, but that he was returning to a particular place. And they set this place up as kind of the new Jerusalem. And at first, this was just sort of a sort of typical... um, ecstatic gathering, you know, you have some weird stuff going on, but for the most part, it was just a group of Christians in the area. But as time goes on, they start to get a little bit weird. They start to say things like, um, they, they reference the paraclete that Jesus says he'll send. But then later as the movement goes on, rather than talking about the paraclete being the Holy Spirit, um, Montanus starts to identify himself as the paraclete. So he he starts to see himself as kind of a successor to Christ in that he is the one that Christ would send in his stead after he ascended to heaven. So the, the Holy Spirit now becomes sort of an animating force within Montanus himself rather than um, the Holy Spirit being God who is indwelling his people and sanctifying and, and moving them to prophetic utterances. Now, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit is sort of sort of fusing with the person of Montanus. Right. Which is bad juju. Very bad. Yeah. So the other thing that we see that's prominent in this, that is somewhat of an oddity, not entirely an oddity, but somewhat of an oddity in the early church is kind of the prominence of women ministers, women in authority. So Priscilla and Maximilla in some ways actually are kind of peers with Montanus. They're not, they're not just kind of junior prophets that are following him around. They're also speaking as the voice of the paraclete. Um, they, as far as what I've studied, they, their personalities don't merge with the paraclete the way that Montanus kind of merged his, but they do have this particular role of authority in the church or in, in the Montanus church that is uh, kind of unattested anywhere else in the early church. And it's not just about, I would say, the method, like you said, the manner in which he's prophesying. It, it does, he has this like particular bent on teaching that when a prophet prophesied, and he goes back and makes this argument throughout the Old Testament, that God was in complete control. So man is basically like asleep, is totally passive during this prophetic utterance. Right. And so it really is like an ecstatic, extreme nature to the, the prophesying that he's doing. So it's not like he's, let's say, in a rational space while he's doing this, allegedly. Right. It's this really kind of almost out of body experience where he's being taken over. So there's something that draws some attention by the fact that it's not just the content, but the manner is really strange. It's something that obviously drew a lot of attention. It's strange to me that this drew like a lot of attention from the church so much so they had to like make a decision about that. Yeah. And so one of the things that we see is some treatments of Montanism treat this as though it's primarily a distinction 
um, in sort of authority structures that 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 their heretics or their declared heretics, not primarily on doctrinal bases, but on the basis that they are setting up an alternative authority structure to the historic Orthodox tradition. Right. And while that second part of the statement is true, that they are condemned for setting up this alternative authority structure, I would I would submit that that actually is a theological distinction that needs to be recognized. And they were condemned on the basis of um, a theological error that they were committing in their ecclesiology as well as their pneumatology. Right. So I just want to read something from um, Greg Allison's book, Historical Theology. It's, it's a little bit of a long passage, but I'm going to read the whole thing because I think it sums it up really well. Uh, it's on page 432. He says, This issue of the Holy Spirit's role in miraculous works became an early topic of debate concerning the Spirit. Montanus, around, along with the two prophetesses, Priscilla and Maximilla, founded the movement called Montanism in the region of Phrygia. The claim of Montanus and these prophetesses to be the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit was denounced by the early church, especially as it had become clear that some of the spirit communications were far from the truth. For example, Montanus claimed, quote, I am the Father, the Son, and the Paraclete. That's pretty crazy. End quote. The pretty crazy part's not part of the quote. Uh, and then Maximilla prophesied, quote, After me there will be no more prophecies until the end. End quote. Indeed, Montanism stirred up hope of the imminent return of Christ and identified the location of the New Jerusalem, claiming this revelation as part of the prophecy of Priscilla. Quote, Appearing as a woman clothed in shining robe, Christ came to me in my sleep. He put wisdom in me and revealed to me that this place is sacred and that here Jerusalem will come down from heaven. End quote. For obvious reasons, the early church did not tolerate such nonsense. In addition, it became suspicious of any overemphasis on the Holy Spirit. So we can see that this movement is not um, very rarely is actually appealing to the canonical scriptures. Now, it, it's right. true that at this in this era, not everywhere in the church has all of the canonical scriptures. But this region particularly, we have no good reason to think that they didn't have the vast majority of the canonical scriptures, including the book of Revelation. And they make reference to language from the book of Revelation in such a way that they're using the language, but they're sort of slightly, just slightly twisting a little bit. I thought it was really interesting that Priscilla says that Christ appeared to him as a, as to her as a woman. So there's obviously some really squirrely things going on in this, in this uh, movement. Yeah, I see in some of this, I don't know if you've thought about this, but like a little bit of syncretism, because my understanding was that before he basically is converted to Christianity, Mosnes was an Asiatic priest in a cult. Right. Yeah. So I think even for the, the two women, like you can see there's a little bit of carrying over this hyper spirituality or the sense of being connectedness to the spirit. And you can see that be very appealing to somebody who kind of came from a, an environment where that was a major part of their religious experience. Right. Yeah. And so... You know, this movement, as it started to spread, right, it starts out in Asia Minor, which if you're picturing the Mediterranean Sea, you've got Asia Minor kind of along the northeast coast, and it loops down, and then there's um, there's Israel, and then you go down and there's the Sinai Peninsula, and then there's North Africa, Egypt, and Carthage. So all around that area, kind of the northern coast, and then North Africa, this movement has kind of spread. And so that's where Tertullian comes in into play. And what we have to realize is Tertullian was attracted to this because of the rigorous tendencies. And what I mean mm -hmm. by that is he he was attracted to the fact that they appeared to be taking holiness, um, personal holiness, more seriously than other parts of the church. Particularly right. for Tertullian, what was really um uh, what was really appealing to him was that they didn't forbid marriage, but they forbid forbade second second marriages. Right. So so even even in the early church, we're seeing some people are drawn to certain kinds of movements because of an ethical element. But what we have to remember, though, is that where Tertullian is in North Africa, as far as I know, he didn't pack up and move to Phrygia. He, he was a Montanist in North Africa. And as you get further away from kind of the epicenter of this. The the extremes of what's going on, the prophetic utterances, the weird claims that they're Montanus is the paraclete, that apparently he's he's the Trinity itself. Um, those things are not necessarily spreading the same way to other parts. So it's true that um Tertullian recognized Montanism and, and was a follower of Montanism. It's not clear that his version or his understanding of what that meant 
was all that different than just sort of a rigorous strain of Orthodox Christianity. Because Tertullian is one of the earliest Trinitarian writers we have, and his Trinitarian theology, his his pneumatology as far as it's concerned, is not only spot on, but it's actually the pattern that most of the church follows for the rest of its development. Right. That's what makes Montanus a really interesting character, because he's a unique, a unique combination. So he has this really strong fidelity to piety. Right. And in fact, I think at one point he insists that if the gifts of the Spirit were scarce in the church, it was due to the moral laxity and spiritual sterility of the church of his time. So he has this commitment to wanting to be pursuing personal holiness, which again is really powerful and is very winsome, I think, to somebody who's concerned about the, the culture that they're in. But at the same time, he's proclaiming like a totally weird new order, like this inbreaking or bypassing of the established authority by direct revelation and putting to the forefront something which really had been like relegated to the margins. So I think he's a really unique character. Yep. And I think there's still, I think a lot of people read about him or they study him and they think he so easily went off the rails. Why is it that no, anybody was taken in by this? And why is it that this was appealing at all? Because like you said, it's so far off the canon. And in fact, the church comes at him pretty strongly by saying, you've really departed from the entire biblical understanding of prophecy. So, you know, how is it that people can even be carried away with this? Yeah, and I think it it boils down in my reading to this rigorous tendency. And, you know, that is sometimes, um, that sometimes is an impulse that drives people further towards orthodoxy. But more often than not, this rigorous tendency within Christianity actually drives people further away from orthodoxy. So like you have the Church of Christ, which is a modern day kind of rigorous movement, and they actually have affirmed a, a version of baptismal rec- uh, regeneration that's even more strict and extreme than the Roman Catholic Church's version of. But people are drawn to it because of this rigorous tendency. There, there's clear delineation um, between what's right and what's wrong. There's clear delineation in every circumstance between what makes you holy and what doesn't. Where I think in in real genuine Christianity, it's not that there's gray areas, but there's nuance and there's things that we have to recognize that not every biblical right. command or biblical law applies to every situation the same way. That doesn't mean there's times where a command doesn't apply, but it may apply in this context slightly differently than it does in a different context. So I think that that rigorous tendency is what drew people, but it was also what what tended to kind of obscure what's going on. Because when you're faced with someone that you believe is really um, kind of a pious person that really loves the Lord and is serving the Lord fervently, it's very difficult to to line that up at times with errant theology. So For sure. I'm not comparing uh, Montanus to William Lane Craig directly, but a lot oh, of man. people, when you, when you level critiques against William Lane Craig's theology, once you kind of get them to the point where they recognize that your theological critiques are valid and there's not really a good reason to believe that what he's saying is true, the first response is often, well, look at his life, though. He's such a pious individual. He's so genuine. Look at all the work he's doing for the kingdom. Well, the problem with that is that we, our doctrine has to precede our practice, right? We can have really great practice. The Mormons are really nice people. They, they are externally, most Mormons would put most evangelicals to shame in terms of outward piety and holiness. That's sure. it's a sad fact, but that's, that's a fact. And, and we can't, we can't mistake the fact, which is what I think a lot of people did in this, this period in early, the early church. We can't mistake the fact that these people had an outward uh, appearance of godliness to obscure the fact that their theology in many ways was absolutely bankrupt. And for those that I think aren't particularly well grounded in doctrine or not confident in what they believe and why they believe it, I can easily see how not only is somebody who's pious very winsome, but somebody who seems to be very spiritually connected is also somewhat intimidating right. in a kind of profound way. So I don't know if you've ever met somebody where you've ever thought, wow, this person is really either very close to the Lord or is absolutely crazy. Yeah. And so I think that this could be an example of that. There are people I know that I think are just fantastically on fire for the Lord and willing to lay down their lives. And you think to yourself, man, they're either really connected with the scriptures and what God is doing in this world, or they're just out of their mind. Yeah. So 
I mean, for what it's worth, I think it's a totally interesting character. And I think this, to your point about basically right thinking leading to right living, it's got to be in that order because we try to reverse it the other way around, or we just think we can build into right living without thinking about what we're doing. We're going to end up probably being convinced by arguments that are incorrect or to fall prey to kind of these things that seem right. Because like you say, starting from, in some ways, a Christian perspective, or at least he's trying to insert himself in this conversation about defining who the Holy Spirit is, what his work is about, and how his relationship is prevalent with the Trinity. And yet, it gets it entirely wrong. Right. And, you know, the, the new mythological errors are significant. But one of the things that I think gets overlooked, and like I said, almost every treatment that I've read, and even even in my like patristics classes in seminary, has kind of glossed over the ecclesiological issue and almost treated it like it was... um almost like a unsavory power play by the Orthodox church that they just kind of like Montanism was a basically Orthodox movement, but it was circumventing the established church. And so they kind of declared it heresy. They tend to treat the Donatist controversy in kind of the same sense. Although in the Donatist controversy, which we'll, we'll get to in a couple heresy casts, the Donatist controversy it was the case that the Donatists were basically Orthodox Christians in terms of their Trinitarianism, their understanding of salvation was the same as the great church. All of the major components of theology were the same, but they had a competing ecclesiology. And so in Montanism, the primary error that they are condemned for is not actually the errors in reference to the Holy Spirit, which I think are more substantial than the ecclesiological issues, but they're condemned because what they're doing is they are stepping outside of the God-ordained revelatory channels of the church. Now, at the time, there was some question about what exactly those revelatory channels were. The early church um, definitely had a premium on scripture. Some people in the early church, and I would even venture they guess a large portion of people in the early church, held a form or a kind of a proto-form of sola scriptura, that scripture was the unique infallible authority that was norm- that normed everything but was not itself normed by anything. But the, the understanding that Montanus had and that the Montanus following him had, at least in Phrygia, was that the Holy Spirit was no longer working through the established church or through the scriptures, but instead was communicating directly. And they tied this to the imminence of the end, that the Holy Spirit was kind of expected to have this burst of activity towards the end that signified the end. But they circumvented the revelation of the of the scriptures, and they circumvented the authority structure that the scriptures themselves, that Paul and Jesus and the other apostles, that just sounded like I mean Jesus an apostle, but I think people know what I meant, that, that the scriptural writers implemented, particularly Paul, they circumvented that. And that is what they were condemned for. It wasn't for a power grab. It wasn't that the church was threatened by the fact that there was this alternative church model that's going on. It was that they were eschewing or eschewing the um, the, the God-ordained authority structure that was given to us by the apostles. Right. And that's the thing that I think is instructive for us still in this age, in the contemporary environment in which we live is these things, you know, what's that quote? Like there's no new news. It's just old news happening to new people. Exactly. We, I think this is the kind of thing that we continue to see either in its stretch form or derivative form, even kind of in our modern evangelical landscape, or at least tendencies, because we all have this proclivity toward the spiritual, and especially in our day and age where most people would rather be identified as spiritual rather than religious for whatever, whatever that means. Right. There's a tendency to kind of want to gravitate back toward these types of behaviors or thinking at least. Yeah. And so we have to also remember that at the same time or roughly the same time that this is happening, we also have the Marcionite controversy happening. So we we end up with kind of a perfect storm. And the result of this perfect storm is a more clearly defined understanding of the authority structures in the church and the canon of scripture. But but the error of Montanus is something that repeats itself throughout church history, right? So we have Montanus who is basically saying the revelation of the scripture is not necessary because I have a direct line to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit right. either is me or or speaks through me such that, yep, the scriptures are great, but they were for an earlier time. They were for an earlier generation. And now that we're towards the end here, now that we're living in the last days, now the Holy Spirit is active in our midst again. So we don't need the scriptures. We don't need the church. We just need the Holy Spirit. 
Right. That thinking comes around again in the Reformation with a lot of the radical Anabaptist movements, right? A lot of the same exact kinds of things that are being said by Montanists were said by those in the the, uh, Munster Rebellion, right? People were saying that they were the Holy Spirit. People were saying that they were the Trinity. They were establishing new laws. They were abolishing scriptural laws. They were saying, we don't need the word. We just have the spirit. And that leads us to our caller's question, I think. Yeah, so let's let's play this voicemail. Fits right in. Hey guys, my name is Emerson. Uh, really appreciate the the show every single week. I find it super edifying and really enjoy listening to it on my way into work. Um, have a question for you on the topic of cessationism. Um, the church I go to is kind of similar to like a Matt Chandler, John Piper type of theology, um, Calvinistic, but believes in the continuation of the gifts, and I don't hold to that. Um, but trying to really understand the arguments, um, I find myself not feeling super confident in the biblical understanding for cessationism. So, Tony, specifically uh, in your review of Sandstorms Practicing the Power, you wrote the following sentence, my move towards cessationism was instinctual, and it wasn't until later that I had the exegesis to undergrid that move. Um, I would really love to, to hear you unpack uh, that exegesis so I can have a better understanding, um, and also specifically your understanding of 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12. So, again, I uh, would, love, would love your knowledge, your expertise on where the biblical under or argument is for cessationism, because sometimes I feel like uh, some of the verses seem very continuationist, and I just want to ground my theology uh, in the scriptures. So again, love the show, and appreciate all that you do. Thanks. Emerson, that is a great question, and it fits in perfectly with our discussion on Montanism, because I see, like we were just saying, so many parallels to understanding what the Spirit's role is in this current epoch, so to speak. But also, I think there's probably varsity forms of Montanism and maybe like JV forms. And so when people say things even like, you know, well, I, I heard from God to do this or heard from God to do that. Sometimes we can fall into kind of a, a JV Montanism perspective. But let's start with like, what, what do you think about this question in terms of trying to understand this concept alongside of like something like cessationism? Yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, John MacArthur did this conference a few years back, um, must have been four years back or so, five years maybe, called the Strange Fire Conference. And ignoring the fact that he totally misapplies that passage and just rips it right out of context. The, the main idea behind the conference was that the Holy Spirit used to work in one way, and the Holy Spirit doesn't work in that way anymore. And so anything that looks like what we saw in the New Testament is necessarily a lie. And so MacArthur breaks up the world of Christianity into cessationists, and charismatics. He doesn't have any room for anything between an extreme hard uh, cessationism and an extreme charismania. So he would place someone like Wayne Grudem or John Piper or Matt Chandler in the same category, more or less, that he would place someone like Bill Johnson from Bethel Redding or um, or the guy who's out at IHOP, not the International House of Burgers, which is the stupidest thing I've ever heard, but the International House of Prayer in Kansas, right? So he puts the people that we would acknowledge, people like Sam Storms, as basically Calvinist Christians who have maybe some errors in their theology surrounding the role of the Holy Spirit. He would put those in the same category as people that we would say are heretical, like Bill Johnson, like the people out of Bethel Riding, like the people out of the International House of Prayer, like any any number right. of these Todd White, you know, um, Benny Hinn, some of these people that are like faith healers, those kinds of people. I think that we have to be more nuanced than that, right? So when we did an episode um, in our systematic theology series about cessationism, we basically said that what ceases during or what ceases in um, at the close of the New Testament is not necessarily the miraculous activity of the Holy Spirit, but is the offices of apostle, prophet, and evangelist. Now, there's some disagreement in the Reformed world whether or not the office of evangelist carries on or not, but mostly the Reformed would acknowledge that those three offices cease, leaving the regular offices of either pastor slash teacher or pastor and teacher as two separate offices. But those regular ordinary offices continue. The extraordinary offices of apostle, prophet, and evangelist do not. That is what ceases at the close of the New Testament. Now, there are Just people- Just to clarify. Yes. Can I interrupt you? Do it. 
Just to clear, just to clarify, oh, this is lame now. Just to clarify, when you said that was the stupidest thing ever, you're talking about IHOP or IHOB? Well, both. House of Prayer or? I know that they can't both be the stupidest thing ever, but That's I. That's what I wanted to ask. IHOP, the, the pancake place, just changed their name to International House of Burgers. I know, I don't get that. Which I, 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 maybe pancakes are not profitable enough or they can't compete with Denny's. I, I don't know. But that's, that's dumb, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm glad that I interrupted you for that. Sorry, go ahead. But IHOP is also also the stupidest thing ever. <laughs> I know that logically it doesn't work, but the International House of Prayer is a den of heresy um, on every possible level. I have a story that if we have time, maybe I'll, I'll tell the story when we get... Um, oh, that's a straight tease. It is. I don't remember where I was at. You did this to me, Jesse. Sorry. We were talking about how certain offices have right, been... Right, right. So there's that, and that would be how I would define a cessationist, right? And so the the gifts that we see practiced in the New Testament are gifts that are associated with those offices, right? Right. So Philip is uh, Philip is a deacon and an evangelist, and he does miraculous things. He apparently is able to run uh, the same speed as a chariot. He's able to teleport. Apparently, he has miraculous knowledge telling him to just go out into the desert for some reason. And he happens to encounter this uh, Ethiopian eunuch next to the only water source in the desert. Right? It makes a big point in the text that they're in the desert and there's not a lot around. Right? So Philip is an evangelist. He has these miraculous powers. Paul is an apostle. He's able to speak unknown languages. He can get bit by snakes and not die. All that stuff at the in the long ending of Mark that appears to be references to the ministry of the apostles, not snake handlers. Um, those are associated with those offices. But there are some who would, would call themselves continuationists who would say that those gifts continue despite the fact that those offices have ceased. Right. So, so those are the two things I would say. There's a cessationist who would say those gifts have ceased because of their association with those offices that have ceased. And then there's continuationists who more or less say the offices have ceased, but the gifts have continued. And then we have the charismatics, which are a whole different animal. You looked like you were going to say something, Jesse. Oh, I was just going to say, I think I appreciate that point because I think the connection between the office and the gifts is what best helps us to understand the color of what you're saying so that we don't split up and totally compartmentalize it. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that really it's the historic position of the Reformed faith that specifically like things like tongues and prophecy had a very specific role to play in the early days of the Christian church. And that was essentially confirming and validating the apostolic message. So right. I like how you said it there, because once you take away, if you're saying that office is no longer in play anymore, that is, it's been, it's been fulfilled, it's completed, then just like anything else that's been fulfilled or completed, the activities that would have gone along with it are no longer necessary. Right. Now, so that's an important distinction. Yeah. And that's not to say, um, I, I don't want to speak for you, Jesse, but I think we're probably on the same page. That's not to say that God can't or doesn't still work in miraculous ways that are similar or the same as the way he worked in the New Testament. So I, I have heard accounts from people on the missions field who have seen miraculous healings or who have witnessed instances where either they themselves or they've been in the presence of someone who speaks a language they don't they don't know and didn't even realize they were speaking a language they didn't know. So those things probably I think still happen, but where where the difference is between a cessationist and a continuationist on those is primarily that the that is not a continuation of the same thing we saw in the New Testament. It exactly. looks the same, it may function similarly, but it's not associated with an office anymore. Now, the charismatics, and particularly a, a group of charismatics known as the New Apostolic Reformation, actually argue that the offices themselves have continued. So you have people who claim to be modern-day apostles. You have people who claim to be modern-day prophets. Um, you have a lot of people claiming to be evangelists, but that that's a whole different kind of animal. So the modern charismatic movement shares a lot in common with Montanus in that it is a circumvention of the established and God-ordained authority structure of the church, right? Because if we look at the ecclesiology that Paul puts forward, that he commands Timothy and Titus to put in place, he commands them to appoint elders, which are teachers, right? He, he commands them to appoint elder, elders who are able to teach. 
that's those last two or one offices, depending on how you split it up. And, and the office of the apostle, which would be Paul, Peter, John, all the apostles, the office of prophets, which we see a handful of prophets in the New Testament, um, Agabus, you know, we see a couple in, in the book of Acts. And then we also, we, we can assume that there's other prophets around. And evangelists like Timothy and Titus, those people, those offices cease. But when you have things like Montanus, who considers himself in many ways to be in the office of apostle or the office of prophet, and then you have people like um, the people in the Munster Rebellion who are calling themselves the prophet, things like that. And then you have the modern day charismatics who call themselves apostles. They call themselves prophets. They call themselves Christ's, right? They're taking the offices of the early church and saying they still continue. And they're using that to circumvent the established church, to circumvent the, uh, the God ordained authority structures that are in place. And most concerningly, they're circumventing the scriptures themselves, right? So, you know, a famous example is Benny Hinn says crazy things like there are nine persons in the Trinity because each person of the Trinity is itself a Trinity. And so there's nine persons in the Trinity. Well, why aren't there 18 persons in the Trinity, right? Or whatever 18 times three is or whatever that times three is. (laughs) I was going to say that's not the right math, but yeah, I'm with you. (laughs) 27, whatever. You know what I mean? Why, why doesn't that continue in infinitely? Right. Well, you know, he doesn't have an answer for that, but they, they're circumventing the, um, the established authority and they're circumventing the scriptures itself. And if you're going to put forward or promulgate that there is, this is still the apostolic age, you basically have to also admit there's going to be additional revelation, right? I mean, there's no way around that. Yeah. And, and, you know, there are people like Wayne Grudem or Sam Storms or Matt Chandler who would say that there's revelation, but it's a revelation of a different, a different category or different nature than scripture. So I don't necessarily buy that argument. Um, if God is speaking, uh, we don't have to say that God speaking authoritatively and through a prophet is equally applicable to every single circumstance. So we wouldn't have to say that, like, if if God tells Matt Chandler that someone in his congregation has a, you know, a problem with cocaine and he's able to pick that person out without any advanced knowledge, we don't have to necessarily say that that's of the same level as, like, the scriptures and that it's somehow right. authoritatively binding. But. What it does do is it subtly undermines the sufficiency of scripture, right? Because now Matt, um, and I don't know that that's ever happened at Matt Chandler's church, but as an example, because in that situation, now Matt as a pastor no longer is applying the scriptures to his congregation. He's now applying this direct revelation that he's received from the Holy Spirit to this person in his congregation. Or right, and that's any kind of those what kinds I of was things. thinking. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bad situation. And Matt Chandler is not a crazy charismatic. He considers himself a charismatic. I would say he's a continuationist. He's in that middle category. Yes, but I agree. But a lot of the same kinds of things happen. And that that's kind of where the question about Sam, with the reference to Sam Storms comes in. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, I, I think that there's a problem here where basically what we're doing is we're taking out the legs of the scriptures. It, it just, to me, sounds like the same kind of subjective reasoning that pervades a lot of our society. And so I think that Christians can fall prey to that kind of thing where they just say, you know, God told me to do this or God. And what they're saying is they're basically saying I had a thought or inspired thought, so to speak, but it wasn't necessarily derived from the scripture itself. And sometimes it can go against the scripture. Sometimes you can have somebody who would say, I feel compelled to do this thing or compelled. For instance, plenty of people, I think well-intentioned Christians have for various reasons said that they have felt led to... uh, become divorced right. and, and not for reasons that we'd say we're scripturally based. And yet, even when you say, well, that goes, how's that comport with what the scripture tells us plainly, but we don't need God to give us some kind of, you know, kind of circumstantial or situational advice in, in that particular moment, because we know what the scriptures make very clear and plain to us. So it is still around. I think this concept and this idea, it doesn't, the heresies don't really die. They just get recycled. Yeah. And the rest of his question, he was looking for um, kind of a, an exegetical look at 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12. Now, I, I want to just put a disclaimer on this. That I, haven't, I haven't personally done any ex, like extensive study on this passage, so I'm, I'm kind of spitballing it. But I, I want to make a connection to something in the Old Testament that I think will help kind of firm up a little bit why it is that these things relate to each other. And this is actually a conversation without realizing it that I had in the Reformed Pub the other day. So I'm just going to read 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13. It says, Love never ends. 
as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So this passage is often used by cessationists in kind of a bare sense. And what I mean by that is, they just kind of say, well, see, Paul says that prophecies are going to cease. He says that tongues are going to cease. He says that words of knowledge are going to cease. Therefore, cessationism. Well, yeah, but when, when does the cessation happen? Right, people like Sam Storms in his book um, "Practicing the Power," they basically dismiss this because there's no grounding that most cessationists use to establish when this is going to take place. Right? These are all future tense verbs, so they could happen. They could have happened the day after Paul wrote this letter, or I suppose the day after Paul this letter was delivered. They could have happened. 30 years after that, they could have happened 100 years, they could still be off in the future some point from our vantage point. So that response from the cessationist camp is is a legit response if this is the only argument that's being made. What do you think about that, Jesse? No, I totally agree with you. I actually see this passage more in terms of, I think the plain point that Paul is trying to make is surrounding the presence of love. So he's mentioning prophecies, tongues, faith, and hope all of these things essentially passing away. So when I read this, I see the eschatological promise that you live in an era where, like you said, this is some kind of future cessation is, is going to take place. But he's basically saying, you know, prophecies are relying on the words of God delivered through the scriptures or his, his prophets in a way that you must believe in them and trust them by faith, which is given to you by the Holy Spirit. And same thing, you have, these tongues are proving, providing validation for those who are of the apostolic era, providing justification for the message that God is bringing. These are, are in fact, my true servants. What they deliver to you is true and correct and is my language. The beautiful thing is there will come a day, at least for certain eschatologically, when those two things will be totally unnecessary because we'll, we'll have participated in the beatific vision, we'll be in the presence of God. So what Paul, I think, is really trying to emphasize by comparison with those things is that when you participate in love now, both loving God and loving others, you're beginning in participating in something that will have no ending. Whereas these other things will certainly fall away because they will be outmooted and unnecessary. Love, even faith and hope will be unnecessary, but love will always go on. Yeah. I mean, that start, I'm sorry, that sounded like Celine Dion at the end there. Yeah, I'll have to edit that in over the top of you. My, my love will go on. No sooner had that come out of my mouth than I just saw Jack trying to stay afloat on that door. That's funny. Have you seen all the crazy like videos online where people prove or disprove that Jack could have fit on the like door? Like the physics? Yeah. Yeah. I think Mythbusters did an episode, a whole, a whole episode about that. Didn't they figure out that he couldn't have actually fit on the door? Because if he was on the door, then the door would have tipped. I have no idea. I mean, it's big enough. There was enough surface space for him to fit on the door, but there was something about the <laughs> dynamics. Anyway. So what I want to do, though is um, Emerson's question was kind of around um, how do we actually prove from the Bible that yes. the gifts have ceased? And, and where yes, is the actual foundation? And one of the, um, one of the features of the New Testament that sometimes can be difficult for us is that it's, they're not written to us, right? This letter was written to a church in the first century that really existed, that was composed of real people that had real problems that needed real answers. And so this, like the, the command to earnestly pray for the spiritual gifts, there's a principle in that, but we don't necessarily have to read that as though the command itself is directly applicable to us. Right. If we read scripture that way, then we need to be finding the body of Paul and bringing him jackets and scrolls and especially the scrolls. Right. Because he commands Timothy to do that. So if every command that's given in scripture is universally applicable exactly as it is on the page, then we are not necessarily reading scripture correctly. Instead, though, we need to recognize that there are certain there are certain um, certain times in scripture where the command is genuinely localized. It's genuinely specific to that congregation to whom it was written. Now, we can go back and forth about whether or not this is. That's not what I want to focus on. 
what I want to focus on to try to give Emerson a little bit of um, a little bit of footing is I think we can look at the Old Testament for an understanding of when the future of this statement is, right? The statement right. that prophecies will cease, tongues will cease, knowledge will pass away. I think that there's a prophecy in the Old Testament that tells us when that's going to happen. So I'm going to turn over to Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 24. Now, if you remember when we did our dispensationalism episode, this passage is very key to the dispensationalists, and I'll explain why after I read it. So starting in verse 24, he says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the world to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again and squares and moat and in the troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And it goes on. And then it says, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and a half a week. and shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And in the wings of abomination, it continues on. The point is this, the dispensationalists read this. And they say there are 69 weeks until the crucifixion of Christ from this prophecy. And then there's this parentheses of an indeterminate amount of time that at this point has lasted for uh, 1960 odd years, almost, uh, almost 70 years, whatever, 1900 years, 2000 years. And at some point in the future, that parentheses will close and the 70th week will, will begin. And that's the seven year tribulation. The reformed historically whether it's you know dispen- uh, pre-mill, um, historic pre-mills, a-mills, or post-mills, the Reformed historically have, under- have understood this 70 weeks to be a reference to the same basic period of time. Where it gets a little interesting, though, is that a lot of Reformed people will say, and they'll identify the fact that there are 70 years, seven weeks, right? Se- a week is generally a year in, in Scripture prophecy. I sound like a dispensationalist, like I should be getting out all my Yeah, charts. you do. <laughs> but they'll point to the fact that it's roughly 70 years out into the common era, into the Christian era, when the temple is destroyed. And lots of people who are partial preterists, like myself, will point out the fact that a lot of these prophecies in the Old Testament seem to come to their culmination when the temple is destroyed. In right. a certain sense, the Lord comes in judgment, in sort of an anticipatory judgment of the last time, when he destroys the temple, when he finally removes the, his, the place where his name is, the physical place where his name is, from the face of the earth. The temple is wiped out. The people of Israel are scattered. And they don't return to being anything looking like a nation for 2,000 years. And that's if you accept modern Israel as some sort of vestige of ancient Israel. I don't, but some people do. If that perspective is right, then what this prophecy is saying is that there are 70 weeks decreed, and at the end of the 70 weeks, vision and prophecy will be sealed, right? Now, vision, I'll have to look into the word a little bit, but that sure seems to line up with what Paul says about prophecy and tongues and knowledge failing or ceasing. So I think we can look at this passage in the Old Testament, and we can say there is a prophecy in the Old Testament, 700 years roughly before Christ, 600 years before Christ, that prophesies that after the time of the Messiah, after atonement has been made for sin, after final judgment on the nation of Israel has come, that prophecy and visions will cease. Words of prophecy, words of knowledge, tongues which are considered a prophetic gift, those things will cease. Well, what happens? For the most part, prophecy and tongues and visions ceased, right? Especially if you place the um, the book of uh, Revelation prior to the destruction of the temple, which I don't. But more or less what we see is this timeline maps up. So we have a prophecy in the Old Testament that says visions will cease after this period of time. We have some someone near that time saying prophecy and visions and you know, knowledge and all this thing, this is going to cease. And then within the next 30 or 40 years, we see the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel taking place with the destruction of the temple. 
to me, that seems like a pretty lock step case against the continuation of the prophetic gifts. And that's almost certainly how the early church understood it as well. Yes. Yeah. The destruction of the temple was a watershed event for both Christianity and, and Judaism, more so for Judaism, but for both both uh, groups, the destruction of the temple was a cataclysmic event. So the the language around like the stars falling from the heaven and things like that probably has something to do with the fact that the this that um, the roof or the ceiling of the temple in the holy of holies was painted like a skyscape. It was painted like stars and things right. like that. It was to represent the cosmos. So the falling of the temple very much is a cataclysmic event and is referenced by a lot of those cataclysmic statements in some of the the Old Testament prophecies. Now, I don't think everything, all of the prophecies could be fulfilled in the destruction of the temple, but it seems to me that this 70 weeks, right, once atonement is made for sin and the final judgment of God's God's covenant Israel comes, revelation or visions and prophecy will cease. That sure seems like what happened. Historically, it lines up. Biblically, it lines up. It just seems like it makes sense to me. And you find that echoed, I think, in a lot of the New Testament authors. So they understand that there is, in a sense, a closure to what's being expressed. So you can pull up there, any number of the letters, the epistles, you're going to find these, now, I don't want to say like an homage, but almost like these Easter eggs to like their understanding that that is exactly what took place. So one quick example would be that I always go to is Jude 3, which reads, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Right. So Jude is clearly anticipating the closing of the New Testament canon of Scripture. And actually, that phrase, once for all, as I understand it, is particularly noteworthy because in Greek, it's just one word. It's called hapex. And it's used to indicate what is like perpetually valid, not requiring any kind of repetition. So whether you go to like Jude, Ephesians, throughout the New Testament, you're going to find that the authors are circling around this sense that things are closed. So they're echoing what you've just said. So you'll find this like continuity throughout the scriptures of the prophecy. And then all of these guys who are writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit are writing in such a way that they have a common understanding about the closed nature of what's being expressed. Right. So I think one of the things that's instructive or illustrative is some people think that the charismatic movement goes back like really far historically, but that's actually relatively right. recent phenomena. Yeah. Yeah. And in this conversation that I was having um, around cessationism, they pointed to a, a kind of a particular clause in the London Baptist confession of faith that I, I had never encountered um, about prayer. And towards the end of the, the section, it's talking about how prayer is efficacious. Um, and it says at the end, it says when with others to pray in a known tongue, And this person was interpreting that to mean that when you're not with others, when you're by yourself, you can pray in an unknown tongue. And he was kind of thinking that was a reference to like spiritual or ecstatic utterances, praying in an angelic tongue or something like that. But there's really no evidence, especially during that time in the 17th century, that praying in an angelic language was a thing. That's something that basically popped onto the scene more or less after thousands of years of not existing. Exactly. In like the early part of the nineteenth, the twentieth century, like like within right. our lifetime, within the lifetime of some of the people right. listening to this, is when this started again. Prior to that, there wasn't people praying in tongues. There's this weird, possibly, probably apocryphal reference to John Calvin. Apparently, had some instance where he spoke in a language he didn't know that was vaguely Hebraic. And he spent like a long time trying to figure out what language it was because he was convinced it was a known language. And I've seen charismatics using that to prove, well, John, look, John Calvin spoke in an angelic language. Well, no, John Calvin thought that he was speaking in a known language. So even if that account is true, it still disproves the idea that Calvin thought that an angelic language was a thing that people could speak in. He spent a substantial amount of time trying to figure out what language it was because he assumed it was a known language because that's what the apostolic gift of tongues is. Right. And like you said, there's a difference between modern occurrences of speaking in tongues, so to speak, where there's a legitimate need and it's a communicative tool that God is using in a particular circumstance. But I think more often than not, when people think about the charismatic gifts in speaking in tongues, we're thinking about the crazy stuff, right? Right. Honestly, I mean, the thing that's like just crazy babbling or people falling on the ground, which is ironically totally reminiscent of Monotus. That, That was his style. Right. So again, it's, it's wild to me that this is not something new. What's new is the way that we have basically sometimes over-spiritualized our experiences 
emotionally or otherwise, with God, especially in public settings, that is the thing that's more or less brand new. Like you said, early kind of 20th century, because certainly not the way that the apostles underwent their ministry, even though they were given the apostolic responsibility to promulgate the gospel, certainly not the way the early church understood it, and certainly not the way the reformers understood right. any of that. Yeah. So so we're kind of coming up on our time. I want to share two quick stories, just because they're they're too good to pass up. All right, let's do so it. So the first one is kind of funny and, and silly, and the second one is more serious. So I'll start with the first one first. There was a time where I was a part of a large church that had a charismatic element within it. I've referenced that on the show before. And I remember specifically at one point, we had this late night prayer service, and it was like probably 1130, maybe 12 o'clock. It was like a really long late night prayer service. And I fell asleep on the floor. Did you fall out of a window? No, I didn't. But I fell asleep on the floor. And when I woke up, I had people standing around me praying for me in tongues. And That's just weird. So th- this is my thought. Okay, that's sort of a silly story. But if these people were really, really were sensitive to the Spirit and really were moving in the Spirit, and these people were prophetic in a sense, you'd think they would know that I wasn't slain in the Spirit, that I was just a, just a teenager that had fallen asleep during church. Right. But none of them had any clue. And I didn't feel like dealing with it, so I just went back to sleep. But they didn't have any clue that, that this wasn't a move of the Spirit. Now, if the Spirit is moving, people are not going to be wrong about that. They're not going to mistake that. You know, the Spirit, in, when the Spirit is present, it's, it's manifest, it's apparent, it's, it's clear that the Spirit is acting. The second story is, is something that I think is a little bit more serious, and this is kind of a cautionary tale. When I was in college, um, there was a girl, and I don't know all the backstory of her family life, but she came from kind of a rough family. She didn't have a great relationship with her parents, and she came to this Christian school. And something happened over break. Um, She went home for Christmas break, came back, and something had happened, and she was just in a really rough shape. She didn't have a J-term course, so she she had January off. So she decided, I'm going to go down to Bethel or down to IHOP in Kansas City, right? I lived in Minnesota. It was like an eight-hour drive. She had planned to just drive down for the weekend and spend time in their prayer room. That was all she wanted to do. She just wanted to go somewhere where she could kind of be in constant prayer around people who were moving in the spirit. And she never came back. There was like police searches. We were sure that she had somehow gotten in a car accident or been kidnapped or killed. We, we were sure that we were never going to see her again. Then, uh, like four years later, five years later, I was in Kansas for a wedding. A friend of mine was getting married. I was in Kansas. And all of a sudden, this girl shows up at the wedding. And I was like, Joelle, what, what is going on? You've been, you've been missing for five years. Nobody knows where you are. And she's like, she's, she looked at me with all seriousness and she said, well, I was devoting myself to the secret place. And I, I said, excuse me? And she said, I was devoting myself to the secret place. And what she meant, I think, was I've spent the last five years in focused prayer. I think she was referencing right. like the prayer closet. But IHOP is a cult, right? Bethel Redding is a cult, right? They have their own language. They have their own deviations from Christian orthodoxy. There are people at both places that have claimed to be specific, unique mouthpieces of the Holy Spirit. Some of the things going on at Bethel Redding at IHOP in Kansas are strikingly similar to what happened in Montanism, up to and including, and in some ways going even further than they did, circumventing the church, right? IHOP is not a church, but most of the people who are very involved in IHOP, they don't attend a local church. All they do is they go to the prayer room. There's not a lot of preaching. There's not a lot of scripture. Most of what's preached in quotation marks at, at IHOP is sort of exposition of the new revelation that's being given to the leadership there. Um, there's been accounts of people who have been murdered at IHOP. It's bad stuff. So I I don't want to like go into it in too depth, but I say that to say the error of Montanism was first and foremost, a deviation from the understanding of the authority that God had ordained in the church and the scripture, which is the overruling norming norm that norms the church. That deviation was the primary problem with Montanism. It's arguable that their their strange pneumatology and some of their strange Trinitarian errors are more significant in terms of theology proper, but the 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 error that flowed out into the most outward practical manifestations and the one that ultimately caused them to be deemed heretics. The reason we're talking about them on heresy cast and not 
another episode where we just talk about someone who's a little bit off is that they believed that they were the true church and that they had come out of the true church and that they no longer needed the authority of the church or the revelation of the scripture, that they had this direct line to God. And if you see, if you are a part of a church that talks like that, run away, run away as fast as you can. If your pastor or whoever is that's up in front on a Sunday or any other day of the week is spending more time expositing the dream they had last night or the vision they think they had than right. the scriptures, then you need to get out of there. Um, don't even visit those places because this is maybe a little bit extreme, but it is highly likely, in my opinion, that those people are receiving messages from Satan, from demonic forces, and that is what they are expositing. They're getting an alternate competing form of revelation. There's only one place that that comes from. Right. So run away from that. Get away from it as fast as you can. Um, that's ultimately what we're saying. And people like Sam Storms and Matt Chandler and John Piper and Wayne Grudem and D.A. Carson and a whole host of pretty much in other areas, reputable and reliable commentators on scripture and reformed theologians. I think with all due respect, they don't know what they're getting themselves into. They don't know the danger that they're exposing themselves to and the danger that they're exposing their congregations and the people who are reading the material to. So that doesn't mean if you've got, you know, DA Carson's commentary on John on your shelf that you should go throw it away or burn it. I have it. It's pretty good, except for some weird EFS stuff that works its way in. Um, but you have to be cautious and you have to recognize that they are departing from the Orthodox uh, tradition on this, not just the Reformed tradition, but the Orthodox tradition on this in significant ways. And most of them recognize that. That's a good word. And I think it's appropriate reminder for the opposite as well, which is to encourage us as believers, as those whom God has saved, and by doing so, sanctified us by giving us his Holy Spirit, that when we want to hear from God, when we need to hear from God, when we need to be fed, we should be participating in Lord's Day gathered worship. And then beyond that, of course, throughout our week, throughout our days, we should be going to the scriptures, praying through the scriptures and asking that the Lord reveal himself by the power of the Spirit through what he has given us and come expectantly that he is going to speak to us, that he will move in our hearts by the words that he has given us. Because you're right, that teaching is all too prevalent and there is a tendency to take the edge off the authority of scripture and put it back somehow into an idea in our minds because we think that God has given us some particular thought that might be outside the scripture. I I always want to make sure that when I sense that the Lord's moving in my life, that it's being married or corroborated with scripture itself. That's the best way possible, especially to pray through the scriptures Yeah, to sense that you know the Lord's leading in that particular way. Because are you familiar with the Alpha course, the Alpha series? I am, yeah. So by name at least. Yep. So I've I've seen this because I was part of a church that did this series. And this is, you know, a common way for churches to kind of do an outreach and introduce non-believers to the basic tenets and doctrines of the Christian faith. And Nikki Gumbel is a, is a fine gentleman for all I know. And I think most of this stuff is more or less on point. It's a great introduction, but he does a whole weekend series. It's supposed to be like a retreat that you go away on to talk about the spirit. And that all culminates at the end where he encourages, he actually admonishes everybody to pray to receive the gift of tongues. And that's tremendously confusing. And basically what he's, he's infusing is exactly what you said. And that is, there is a, another authority outside the scriptures that you yeah. can go to to essentially receive some kind of revelation or warm, fuzzy feeling. And it does, as we've talked about before, tend to create two classes of Christians. There are those that somehow are more spiritually connected because they're able to speak in tongues, and they have a, a more clear, direct connection or line with God himself. Right. So you're right. The, the thing about monetism that gives us pause and is a good reason to consider it is this kind of dual heresy that's in place, major, profound theological errors. But the pragmatic outworking of those errors are absolutely disastrous. Because if you think that you're receiving some kind of revelation from God outside of the scriptures, not only are you mistaken, but you're about to be in for a world of trouble. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's as good a place to end it as any. Um, So we're going to, I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources. Um, If you ever hear us reference a book, something we're doing uh, on the the website now that's a little bit new is at the bottom of each post on the website, there's going to be like a little Amazon carousel. If you hear about us talking about a book on the show that you're interested in uh, and you, you click on it through that link and you purchase it, we get a little kickback. So, um, so if you want to buy one of the books, no pressure, but if you want to buy the books, if you could go through that link, that would be much appreciated. And I heard from our t-shirt distributor that the very first Reformed Brotherhood t-shirt has been purchased. 
All right. I know. Yeah. So in case you Who missed the announcement. would want our faces? I know. It was probably mom. But um, <laughs> in, in case you um, in case you missed the announcement, we now have official Reformed Brotherhood t-shirts. And you could go to Rooted Apparels. Uh, is it Rooted Apparels or Rooted Apparels, Inc.? I don't remember. I think it's just Rooted Apparels. Yeah. Rootedapparels.com. Uh, they've got all sorts of great t-shirts. The material is awesome. It's super comfortable. Um, and uh, you can scroll down and find the Reformed Brotherhood page. As I said, right now there's t-shirts in two colors, uh, and and we get a small portion of any sort of revenue that's purchased on those. So if you want to buy a t-shirt, uh, that's the way to do it. If you use the coupon code Reformed Brotherhood with a space between the words, uh, you'll get free shipping on anything in your order. And there may be, there may be coffee mugs coming. Oh man, it's possible. Also, if you gotta get those mugs. If you're interested in veganism, there's lots of cool veganism T-shirts too. Yes, it's a little mishmash, but I love it. It's it's a great distributor. Uh, the the guy who runs it is a listener of the show, and, and we're just thrilled to be able to endorse a brother in his uh, attempt to glorify God through his his craft. Um, and it, he makes great products. He he does it. Right on. And he does it for the glory of God. So check it out. Lots of great stuff there. And Jesse, what is that phone number? Since we are going to do our actual questions cast, what's that phone number if people want yeah, to call Yeah, we got question cast coming, so get your voice on our voicemail. It's 607-444-2767. Bros. All right, Jesse, take us out. <laughs> All right, so I think the lesson for this week was don't be monetous, Yeah, right? Yeah, pretty much, or a charismatic, which is really the same thing. Or, yeah, or charismatic, one in the same. Next time, don't call somebody a charismatic. Just be like, yo, stop being monetous stop it i've actually found that if you refer to people by the ancient heresy that they hold uh they're less likely to be offended than if you use a modern label i know see that's the beauty of it that's what i'm saying use that instead then somebody will be like what the heck is that they'll go look it up and then they'll be like oh you you are right and i am in sin and i should apologize exactly exactly yeah all right well with with that said (laughs) we are all over the place Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Ah.